guys, you got some energy left? This, this weekend kind of wiped me out a little bit, but we're good. We got a couple cups of coffee. We'll see how this goes. But guys, it's great to, to see you. For those of you who are still on the live stream, I can't see you. It's great to be together. Honestly, it's a joy to know that like, even though you're not here right now, like, we can still know that we're gathered as a Doxa family all around our city, and that's just an awesome thing. But if you're new or visiting, my name is Rob. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's great to have you part of the, the Doxa family gathering today. Hope you feel welcomed. And if you are, in fact, newer to Doxa and we haven't had the chance to meet yet, man, I would love the chance to, to get to know you, to have you come and introduce yourself before you head out, and I would just absolutely love that. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your Bibles, okay? Open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, all right? We're going to continue our study through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started. And then years later, it just kind of went wild, all right? That this was a totally healthy church and went on, and then something happened, all right? That all of a sudden, there was just so much dysfunction, so much division, so much pride. Sin was just running rampant in the church. And as we've been going through this, you know, I had this thought. You know, 1 Corinthians, as we've been studying it, is really kind of just a, a letter about the different ways to jack up a perfectly good church. All right, that the Corinthian church started off as a, as a really great church. Paul said that they were lacking no spiritual gifts. It was vibrant. It was a church just full of life. They were growing. They were loving Jesus. But in the midst of this, the culture of the city began to invade the nature of the church. And as this happened, the church in Corinth began to lose its distinctiveness. It really began to lose its, its godliness. And so the Apostle Paul is, is writing to them to really just correct all of the craziness that's going on in this church. And as we've been going through this, if you've been here, we've seen some craziness, right? I mean, last week we, we learned the great truth that making out with your stepmom is not a good thing, okay? And that's, a, that's still true today, amen? Just in case you were confused about David's message last week, okay? But there's craziness. And in the weeks to come, we're gonna get into like sexuality, we're gonna get into drunkenness, we're gonna get into like crazy worship services. There's just a lot of crazy stuff going on in this church. But let me just say this. This is exactly why we study and teach the Bible the way that we do. Just kind of slow and steady, kind of book by book, verse by verse, so we don't skip this stuff. So we don't skip the hard things, right? I mean, because if we just kind of like got up here every Sunday and just kind of picked the verses that we like, picked the topics that we really, really liked, and taught through all of that, we would likely never land on many of these passages in 1 Corinthians because they're just hard. Some of it's just weird. And we might have the thought of like, well, there's new people here. Like, we want to make sure, let's, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about lambs and all that stuff. Like, that'll be better. Like, maybe there's just some of this stuff that's just kind of hard that we're like, man, I don't want to hear this. I don't like to hear this. But this is what I want you to know. The Bible is filled with the words of God to us. All right, filled with the things that even if we don't like to hear it, even if we don't really want to hear it, and it's hard to hear, hear this, Doxa. We absolutely need to hear it. Absolutely need to hear it. That all the words of the Bible says, 1 Timothy 3, are from God for our good. To help us, to encourage us, to correct us, to challenge us, to, to really shape us into the men and women that he has created us to be. And today, one of the things that we're going to learn is that 1 Corinthians is, is really not an idealistic book, okay? 1 Corinthians is actually an intensely realistic book. It acknowledges, and we're going to see this today, that, that Christians, as they live life together in community, they're going to occasionally have conflict. 
They're going to occasionally get into disagreements, and, and this is true of all people. This isn't true of just like Christians, but all people, right? That we have people in our lives that annoy us, we annoy other people, and we have these thoughts when we get in these conflicts of like, man, this world, my life would be so much easier if there were just no people, right? If it was just me, this, I'd have a high level of satisfaction because I can get along with myself. But we have these different thoughts, but as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I just want you to consider this, okay? When it comes to conflict, we... As Americans, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we are a very litigious people. All right, that we love to take our neighbors, our family, our friends, pretty much anyone we can get a hold of to court and to sue them when they have done something wrong to us. We absolutely like doing this. And maybe you're thinking like, I mean, that's an exaggeration. I don't know if that's actually true. But here's what I would say to you, right? Here's what you can do. Go home, turn on your TV, and just see how Hollywood has capitalized on this reality of the human experience. That on any given day, you can simply go home, you can turn on the TV, you can find Judge Judy, you can find divorce court, paternity court, kids court, right? Judge Joe Brown, the people's court. Right? There's another one like called animal court. I'm, I'm not even sure what that is. I'm sure it's riveting though, okay? But the point is, we are not a people who like to be wronged. We don't like when people offend us. We don't like being mistreated. We don't like being taken advantage of And Americans, we are just a prideful people, much like the Corinthians that we have been studying. And we don't handle it well when any of that stuff happens to us. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. But as prevalent as this courtroom scene is in America, more often than not, we don't wind up in court when someone mistreats us. Right, our mistreatments usually take the form of like somebody like gossiping about us or spreading rumors, having negative attitudes towards us, maybe taking advantage of us in some way, trying to like push us around. And our response is usually not to take them to court, but we seek to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves, to fight back and win in some way. We just kind of bow up. This is what most of us do. But I want you to understand this, Doxa. All right, our reaction and how we respond to these instances when we're wronged and mistreated and hurt hear this, tells us a lot about ourselves and where our hope truly lies. This was a a big problem in the Corinthian church. People were just kind of sue crazy and Paul saw it as a problem. And he didn't see this as a problem because there was conflict, because conflict isn't always a bad thing, right? It It can build intimacy, grow intimacy within a community. But he thought this was a bad thing and he saw this as a bad thing because of the way that they were handling this conflict. That these Christians, they were just handling this conflict in their lives and in the church in a very poor way. And as they did this, it reflected very poorly on the people of God. It reflected very poorly on the church of God. And specifically, it reflected very poorly on God himself. And so this passage, this section of 1 Corinthians is ultimately about this. How Christians are to relate to one another when somebody has been wronged. All right, and this is what Paul says. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or you do not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Quick fun fact for you, we'll talk about that in a minute, kind of weird, right? But how much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So here's how we're gonna approach understanding this, this text today. We're essentially just gonna ask two questions. The first, we're gonna say, okay, well, what is actually happening here in Corinth? And then we're gonna follow this up by saying, okay, like how do we actually apply this to our lives? And so number one, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to know. The Corinthian Christians were, were just radically impacted by the culture, the culture of the city driven by people who don't know, acknowledge, love, worship, follow God at all, and they began to follow the cultural ways and the thinking of the culture around them, and they were just suing each other over trivial matters. This is verse two. And it's important to understand that in Corinth, in this time, as it related to legal situations, litigation was just really just part of everyday life. All right, the historian Barclay describes it like this. He says this, the Greeks were characteristically a litigious people. The law courts were one of their chief entertainments. In a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer and spent a great part of his time and his life either deciding or listening to law cases. All right, and, and the Corinthian Christians had been so used to arguing and fighting and just dividing and disputing and just going to court with one another before they knew Jesus that they carried these selfish tendencies, these habits into their new Christian lives and really into the church. And Paul is confronting them and he's telling them Doc said, this is not the way we live as Christians. This is what Paul is saying. This is just one more way that we will dishonor God, and this is one more way to destroy and mess up a perfectly good church. And so Paul is instructing the church here on how to handle these trivial relational issues. Now, as a quick note, okay, this instruction doesn't imply that like everything that happens in a church is necessarily like an in-house issue. All right, that if you study the, the history of the church, many churches have made the terrible mistake of trying to handle everything that happens in their church in-house. Rather, it should have gone to like a state authority for intervention, okay? And if this had been like an issue like embezzlement or abuse or rape or murder or anything like that, any type of criminal act, Paul would have called, certainly called, for the intervention of the governing authorities. All right, well, what Paul is talking about here is what we call like civil lawsuits as opposed to criminal cases. All right, one commentator that I read put it like this. He said, in speaking of Christians taking people to court, Paul does not specify any criminal cases because he teaches elsewhere that these must be handled by the state, as he notes in Romans 13. In the expression, when Paul says having a lawsuit or a dispute, Paul means to include different kinds of personal and property cases. So he's not dis dis diminishing like local government and local authorities outside the church. That's not what he's doing here. In fact, if you remember back to our study in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18, Paul himself goes before the Roman proconsul for help. And so Paul is not diminishing the state here, but Paul's condemnation specifically applies to voluntary civil suits filed by an individual believer against another individual believer. And his point is this. Guys, matters that are so small and trivial should be handled within the Christian community, the church, so that we don't make a spectacle of the church in a mockery of God. And if you look to verse two, here's why Paul is so confident that they can actually work to resolve these issues without going into litigation into a secular court. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you 
incompetent to try trivial cases. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Now before, Paul actually said, he's writing these hard things and he says, I'm actually not writing this to shame you. But here he says, no, I actually am writing this to shame you. You should be ashamed of the way that you're living. So these are very strong words from Paul to these Christians, these people that he loved, this church that he started. And then he says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers. So, Doxa, why is Paul so confident that the Corinthian Christians can and should resolve these trivial relational conflicts without litigation? Two things to see, all right? Paul develops his, his argument based on the theological foundations of Christian identity and destiny. All right, he begins, if you look back, by reminding them of who they are in Christ. Paul oftentimes does this. All right, that he's saying that your identity drives your activity. And so he always goes back to saying, here's who you actually are in Christ. And he calls them saints. And some of you might be thinking, like, aren't those all the dead white guys, right? If you grew up Catholic, right, you know that you're like, these are all the dead guys, right? But you need to understand, when the Bible talks about saints, it's talking about anyone who knows, loves, and obeys Jesus. And so you, if you are in Christ, you are actually a saint. This is your identity. And as Paul reminds them that they're saints, different from the world around them, and different from the like, litigious culture of the city, he goes on to say, because of this truth, you will one day become judges, not only of the world, but of angels. All right, now I'm not gonna spend a whole lot of time on this, but I'll just mention this. Paul basically draws this, this kind of theology from places like Daniel 7, Matthew 19, Revelation 3, where we get the truth that we're told that Christians will help Jesus exercise judgment over the non-Christian world, both people and angels. That when Jesus comes back, this day that we as Christians like eagerly wait for, right, where he fully establishes his kingdom and he wipes away every tear from our eye and death and sin will be no more. This is a day that we're looking forward to, right? But when he comes back, believers throughout all history will be his joint rulers sitting with him on his throne, and although we don't entirely know what this means, that's a part of our responsibility as rulers with Christ will be to judge the world, and that one day, the saints will help rule the entire world. And so Paul, with that understanding from the Bible, he's saying, if this is your identity, and this is actually your destiny, then surely you can judge these trivial matters within the church. He's saying, for these trivial, civil matters, you don't need to, to have a, a professional attorney. You just need to love the Lord. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to have a sense of justice. You need to just be impartial. Maybe the gift of wisdom would be helpful in this, but he just says, you can work this out. This is how you can live. You can do this, and it, everything is gonna be fine. And so Paul is saying, this is like absolutely absurd what you are doing. Why would you take these cases, these, these relational issues that are going on in the church between Christians, between saints, why would you take them to go between an authority that doesn't even know and acknowledge Jesus? He's saying it's absurd. And that's why he says, I say this to your shame. He's like, it's absolutely, incredibly foolish. He says, you have the spirit, you have the word of God. You need to do this. And you can do this. Because here's what happens when you don't. Look at verse 7. He says, it's a defeat for you. It's a defeat. And here's what this means. All right, Paul is saying that when you go to court, you may win big personally. 
But when you do this, you actually incur a massive defeat spiritually. And here's why. Doxa, when Christians take each other to court and fight and get nasty, the world watches. The world watches Christian love and fellowship just disintegrate. And what they do is they start to think, man, you know what? These Christians, they're really no different than we are. I mean, they, they say that we need God. They say that we are all broken and jacked up and that God is the answer and that he will change our lives. But they are doing the exact same thing as us. There's no difference. And the point of 1 Corinthians, a lot of it is Paul just saying like, no, the church, saints, you're actually different. You're to be a light in the world. You're to be like Jesus. And when people start to see how these Christians are acting, they're saying, we don't need God. This is just like a fairy tale that they just tell their kids. And so Paul is saying, you destroy the witness, you destroy your witness to a watching world when you act like this towards other Christians. It's not the way that God intends his family to work. The church is supposed to be, Doxa, the church is supposed to be a very peculiar place. You know that? Supposed to be a very peculiar place where the love and the grace of God demonstrated in the relationships of the people in the church make people think, huh, why do they live like that? Like how do they live like that? I don't know that type of love and grace and patience. And when that happens, all we do as Christians, this is what Jesus said, is just point to him. It's nothing about us, it's about our Jesus. And what Paul is trying to help them see, which is so true for us today, is this. Guys, non-Christians, which we all were at one point, God has opened up our eyes and we've, we've seen the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus, but people outside the church and this is especially true in Madison, are so quick to pounce on the slightest inconsistency in a church or a Christian. And they're so quickly to dismiss the message when they see these inconsistencies. And Paul is saying, you, saint, Christian, protect the integrity of the gospel with the way that you live your life. And with this understanding, that's why Paul says, look back to verse seven, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And here's what he's saying. He's saying basically, before you pursue litigation in the secular court, the first thing you need to ask yourself is this, at what cost will I pursue this? All right, not just financially, but you ask, what is this going to cost me? What is this going to cost the church? Doc, so the way that you hear this, the way that you live your life actually matters. It matters for eternity, it matters for the kingdom, it matters for the gospel going to the ends of the world today. The way that we live our lives and conduct ourselves in this city absolutely makes a difference. It's big. And so you ask, what will this do to our church? What will this do to the name of Jesus? If I pursue this, what will this do to the gospel? How will this appear to the people who are outside the church, my, my non-Christian family and friends and the media, whoever's involved, and you say, and you look at this and you say, is it actually worth it? Is it worth it? Now there's gonna be times, and there are times that you know the best thing is to actually go to court. The best thing for the name of Jesus is to go to court and seek litigation because crimes have been committed. Justice needs to come, God's people need to stand up for what is right, 
I'll give you an example historically, okay? Slavery. Where it was there, a lot of Christians stood up and said, this is wrong. Legally, slavery is wrong. And we're gonna fight. We're gonna unite as the family of God and we're gonna seek change. And we say this and we look at this and say, yes, absolutely, this is good. This is a good demonstration of the love of Jesus for all people. And so sometimes going to court is the best way to show the loving justice of God. But other times you look at it and you say, you know, this really just isn't worth it. Because if I go to court, even if I win, I'm gonna harm the church. I'm gonna harm the name of Jesus, the reputation of the gospel, and it's really just not worth it. And so the fact that I hire a guy from our church to come over and do work on my house and he does a really crappy job and doesn't finish it and just kinda disappears and it actually costs me more money, I look at that situation and I say, you know what, I'm just gonna eat it for the sake of the gospel and the mission of Jesus. Right, it would just be really awkward if I just sued somebody in our church. It's like that's gonna ruin the prayer meeting when a pastor's sitting there with the guy he sued, right? (laughs) And so we just say, for the sake of the gospel, I'm gonna eat it. And that is why Paul says the litigious nature of the church can't creep into it, or the culture can't creep into the church, that we live by a different standard. We have a different posture, we have a different model that was set by Jesus that we're different from the world around us because we know the love of God. And so this is what's happening. And this leads to our second question, how does this apply to our lives, right? Because maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking like in light of this topic of like Christians suing each other, you might be saying like, I don't really think this is a big deal in my life. Like I've never sued anybody. I don't have any desire to sue anybody. Like I'm certainly not gonna sue another Christian. I mean, I don't even know how to sue. I guess I could drive up and down the belt line and find one of those old guys big head on the billboard and the number and just call it and start the process. But I really don't know. And so I don't think this applies to me. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking like, okay, Paul is is speaking about Christian-Christian conflict. Within the immediate context, you're absolutely right. But maybe you're thinking like, I am a Christian, but most of my conflict is with people that are non-Christians, that I live by and I work with. And so this doesn't again apply to to me because apparently I can just go and do whatever I want, I can fight, I can take them to court, I can just do what I want and justify myself. But here's what you need to know, Doxa. One of the things that the New Testament writers do is they see a specific problem in a church, specific issues like here in Corinth, and then they apply some principle to that specific application that we can learn from. See, in 1 Corinthians 6, we we don't get Paul's full understanding of his ethic of personal relationships. We just get a snapshot. And we need to understand that the problem of lawsuits in the Corinthian church was a very specific behavioral problem. But what I wanna do for the remainder of our time is to kinda draw out the underlying principle from scripture. The principle that doesn't just dictate how we deal with conflict and litigation in the church among other Christians, but hear this. How do we deal with this when it's in our house? How do we deal with being mistreated and offended when we're at work? Like how do we deal with this in our neighborhood, with our friends, our family, in our marriages, when our spouse like criticizes us and offends us, how do we deal with it then? Like what do we actually do? Because our knee-jerk reaction when this happens to almost all of us is to defend ourselves. We wanna make things right, we wanna seek justice for ourselves, the natural American way. Stand up, rise up, fight, don't tread on me. This is all what we wanna do, but hear me on this. Doxa, this is not the call on your life as a Christian. It's just not. 
And we as the people of God, we need to know how to respond in a godly way when we are mistreated and offended or taken advantage of. And so what do we do? Paul actually addresses this in verse seven, look back. How do we respond in a godly way when we are mistreated? Paul says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It's Paul's answer, this is what we do. And so maybe you you hear this and you think, okay, so you're telling me like I just need to roll over. Nah, bro, I don't roll like that. Is that what you're telling me? I mean, why would I ever live like that? No one lives like that. I mean, this is so counterintuitive, this is so countercultural, it doesn't make sense. But Doxa, I want to tell you this. All right, the sin in our lives, the sin in our world oftentimes makes the truths and the ways of God feel like that. But this doesn't negate it as a true way. And so to explore this more, here's what I want you to do. Grab your Bible, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter two. All right, this is gonna be helpful for us understanding this. The Salt Company, our college ministry, they're currently studying through 1 Peter. So you college students that are here, this might be familiar to you, but Peter, he's writing his letter to believers who are suffering injustice and persecution. They are being wronged, they're being mistreated, and he's writing to encourage them. All right, not just to endure, but how to do it. And he says in verse nine of chapter two, take a look, he starts off, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's saying you're saints. This is the same language that Paul is saying. This is your identity. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All right, Peter says, much like Paul in many of his letters, Doxa, that one of your primary goals in life, hear me on this, this is big. One of our primary goals in life is to make the beauty and the glory and the love of the invisible God visible to a lost, broken, sinful world. We do this not just by what we say, but how we live. But how? Look down to verse 18, and this is where it's gonna relate to what we're talking about today in 1 Corinthians 6. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering. All right, Peter is saying that this posture and this practice finds favor with God. And the wording here of gracious is like, this, it's synonymous with like the word credit, indicating that God's people we as Christians will receive a reward and a blessing from God if we endure suffering and mistreatment righteously. This is a truth that we see throughout scripture. But verse 20, for what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And this is so important, we can't just blow past this. Doctor, if you wanna know how to find favor with God and blessing from God, He says right here, act righteously when you're mistreated. Act like Jesus. This goes right along with Paul's question in verse seven. Why not be defrauded? Why not suffer wrong? Peter says you find blessing and favor with God when you do this. Verse 21 now. For to you, for this, or for to this, you have been called. Christians, this is talking directly to you because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might, and I want you to underline this next part, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So, Doxa, how does this all apply to us? Why do Paul and Peter both say to endure mistreatment? It's this. Christ suffered for us in that way. And he left us an example to follow. All right, Peter says that Jesus suffered unjustly for you. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Guys, the gospel that saves us also drives our response to mistreatment. That Jesus died for your sin. That he suffered great injustice for you because of what you did. He was perfect. He didn't do anything. All of this mistreatment, all of this injustice came upon him as an innocent man. And so for some of you, maybe you're, you're not a Christian, I don't want you to leave here and think, wow, these people are really good and really are striving to be nice people. No, we're striving to be like our Jesus. And when we are like our Jesus who saves us, he transforms our lives and we live like him for the sake of the world and the integrity of the gospel. And so don't leave here today thinking like the most important thing I need to do is learn how to resolve conflict. The most important thing that you need to do is come to Jesus so he can change your heart. This is the only way. And as disciples, when we come to him in faith, we're called to suffer unjustly in the manner that Christ did for us. Doc, so this is the Christian life. This is what you signed up for when you put your faith in Jesus. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, listen to this. He says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus is saying, let me just clarify what your life is actually about. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you or take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now you hear this. I mean, if we're all honest, I don't care how Christian you are. Like if someone slapped me on the face, bro, come on. It's just so countercultural. But this is how Jesus lived. But it's so countercultural and what makes it so hard for us and so hard for the Corinthians. But here is what every Christian needs to hear and consider. The posture that Paul is saying that we should have. Why not just be wronged? The way of, of living and forgiving that Jesus says here. Because I want you to hear this. It's felt before it's practiced. It's felt before it's practiced. In other words, we must know in our hearts that we have experienced this. All right, the human heart needs to have a propensity and an inclination because of the embrace of God the Father who loved us sinners through his son. That if a sinner has been cleansed, justified, sanctified in Christ, then that heart will be moved and should be moved to want to forgive and love like Paul and Jesus are saying. It won't just be countercultural, but it'll be an implication of the gospel in our lives because we have received that from God. And Doxa, this is the basis of why we're called to patiently endure as Paul is sharing in 1 Corinthians 6. Because our Lord, our Savior, our Master Jesus did it. And he didn't just do it, but he did it for us. He did it for you. And I know that you could be thinking, but Rob, he was God, right? I know he had some superpowers, 
right? The cape was hanging out the bottom of the tunic, right? And surely those superpowers that he had allowed those accusations and those mistreatments to just kind of bounce off of him. That as he walked to the cross and people were beating him and hurling insults at him and all of this, it just kind of like shed off him. He didn't even really get bothered by it. He just went to the cross and it was fine. He was God. Superpowers. And some of you think that. I just want you to know that this notion that many Christians have is so detrimental. It's not only completely false, but it's hurtful to us actually trying to fight sin and temptation in our lives. See, it wasn't Jesus' deity that allowed him to fight sin and not retaliate. It wasn't because he was God that he was able to respond to mistreatment like he did. I mean, if you think about it, Isaiah 53 said he was, as he was being murdered and unjustly treated, he said nothing. Jesus, he lived what he preached. And it wasn't because that he was God that he responded like that. Here, here's what it was. Jesus rested on a promise. He rested on a promise. And this is the same promise that we have today as we seek to patiently endure when we suffer injustice and mistreatment and we want to defend ourselves. Look at verse 23. It wasn't his deity that allowed him to persevere. But verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, and I want you to underline that part, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus Christ entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Doxa, that is a promise. That is something that we can cling to. All right, that he entrusted himself. That's how he did it. This is what Paul had in mind as he wrote to the Corinthians and how they were to respond to mistreatment. That Jesus placed his life, he placed his plans, he placed his reputation, he placed his rights in the hands of a sovereign God who judges justly. He said, my father will make it right. My father will work for me, my father loves me, my father will protect me, my father will work this out somehow to my good so I can patiently endure it because my father is good, my father is just, my father is righteous, and he loves me. This is the promise for us today, that your father will make it right. Your father judges justly. Do you believe that this morning? I mean, really, in your own instances, in your own specific situations, when you're being mistreated and suffering injustice, do you believe this? This is a promise of God. Doctor, so much of the Christian life is walking and struggling and fighting to believe the promises of God. Do you believe this? Because Jesus did. He absolutely did. He believed it as he marched boldly to the cross. He believed that God would show up and fulfill his promise to do justice, to fight for him. And maybe you're tempted to look at the cross and, and think like, Okay, Jesus like entrusted himself to God and he went and he was beaten and he was murdered and he was mocked. He was killed. He didn't say anything. Where is God in this? That doesn't seem like a God who does justice and fights for us. But Doxa, make no mistake this morning, God is a God who makes due on his promises. All right, Philippians chapter two says it like this, that in light of what Jesus had done, as he entrusted himself to the Father amidst his mistreatment, 
listen, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess on heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. God makes good on his promises. That just as blessing and honor came to Jesus from the Father because of his obedience, blessing will come to us as we who follow in Jesus' footsteps and love and forgive like Jesus when we are mistreated. You can trust this this morning, Doxa. This is what God has for us. This is the promise that we need to cling to today when we leave this room because make no mistake, this week you will be mistreated. Somebody is gonna offend you, someone's gonna treat you bad, and in that moment, when you wanna rise up, you now, you now know you have the choice. Will I entrust myself to God? Will I let him fight? Who judges justly? Or will I take it on myself and will I become the judge and seek justice for myself? Doxa, you will be mistreated and I pray that you trust the promise of God. That he is a God who judges justly for me. This is an amazing promise. Such a great promise. And if we believe that we serve a God like that, we will live as Paul is saying to Corinthians should. Why not be suffering wrong? Why not be defrauded? Because I can trust God. I don't need to fight my own battles. I have a warrior for a God. This is what Moses knew. Now let me end with this. The message of Paul, the message of Peter, the message of Jesus is not to simply just get over it and don't worry about it. Right, the message isn't like, hey, Doxa, who cares? Just trust God. He judges justly. The message is not to like diminish your hurts and tell you just to forget about it. All right, because the reality is, is some of you, you have suffered crazy, terrible, life-shattering hurts and mistreatments. And I don't want you to hear me saying, well, you just need to get over it. Trust God, where's your faith? It's not what I'm saying. It's not it. The message that God has is this. God is saying this to all of us today. I know that you have pain. I know that you've been hurt. I know that you've been wronged. I know that you're enduring mistreatment and you're gonna continue doing this until the day you take your last breath. But God says, here's what I want you to know. Hebrews chapter four. We have a great high priest in Jesus who is able to sympathize with us. So I might stand up here and you might say, you can't empathize with my level of suffering and mistreatment. Now, I might not be able to. But the Sunday school answer, Jesus can. And he does. And so I don't want you to hear me say, just forget about it. Jesus says, I understand. I'm with you. I sympathize with you. And in light of that truth, God says, trust in me. Hope in me. Cast your burdens upon me and trust yourself to me. I am a God who wants to work on your behalf. So come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, you, and learn from me because I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. God is saying, let me be your defender. Let me be your father. Let me work this out for your good. Just give it to me and rest in me and trust in me. That's what's held out to us today, Doxa. Not just get over it, but find peace at laying it at the feet of the Father who judges justly and righteously for his kids. And when we do this, we'll see the blessing of God in our lives. 
And we'll say to ourselves, you know what? I'd rather be wronged. I'd rather be defrauded than to try and obtain justice for myself. And as you trust in this promise, Psalm 146 is beautiful. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord loves the righteous, the Lord will reign forever. Praise the Lord. And today, Christian, you can worship and give praise like this psalmist because we have a God who will deal justly for us. That's the promise you need to leave here clinging to today. But this is the promise that that Jesus clung to. And our goal here at Doxa is to glorify God with everything that we do by living like Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And that's why we sing songs like, oh, to be like him. I'd give all I have just to know him. Oh, to be like him. Let's be like Jesus. Let's be a church that strives to be like Jesus as we encounter the gospel in a fresh way every single day. Let me pray. God, I'll I'll confess that even thinking about preaching to a group of people and telling them how it is that we should respond. I feel like you've gripped my heart and challenged me this week. And God, I just, I need your grace. I need your grace to, to trust your promise that you will deal justly, that you are my father, you are my defender, you are a warrior, and that it's better to be wronged than to fight on my own. And so God, would you just help this this message, this passage, this promise, like sink into our hearts here? Would you allow Doxa to be a peculiar place as we live like Jesus? That as we engage with the world around us, when we're mistreated, when we're hurt, when we're defrauded, when we're done wrong, would you allow us to have the posture of Jesus? We wanna be a city on a hill, a light in this city that people can look to and not say, wow, Doxa people are really great. But we just wanna be just a sign, a reflector that says Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the reason. So just help us to be like you, help us to trust you. God, we love you. Jesus, thank you for suffering injustice, for being mistreated on our behalf. would that truth sink into us in a way that we would end up living like you. We ask this in Jesus' name.